0: Thank you. It's Friday, November 19th. I'm Stephen Fee, and this is The Pen Pod, a podcast from PEN America. On today's edition, novelist, attorney, and activist Natasha Dion on her new book, The Perishing, and how redemption and immortality are essential parts of her storytelling toolkit. Then tough questions with PEN America CEO Suzanne Nassel. This week, we covered the Biden-China summit, a free speech university in Texas, and the release of U.S. Danny Fenster from a Myanmar prison. I'm Stephen Fee. That's all coming up on The Pen Pod. Joining me now, Natasha Dion, a Southern California criminal attorney, law professor, literary organizer, and author of the recent novel, Out From Counterpoint, The Perishing, a riveting story about a Black woman in 1930s Los Angeles that weaves together history and fantasy. Welcome to The Pen Pod.
1: Hey, Stephen, thank you for having me. Happy to be here.
0: Well, thank you. We're happy to have you here. Um, congratulations, of course, on the book. Um, you know, in, in some ways it feels very fitting. Your character in the novel is is immortal. Uh, I think most of us would probably need multiple lifetimes to accomplish everything that you have accomplished. Um, <laughs> but, but really, I mean, as someone who's had so many projects in play and you wear so many hats, how did creating an immortal character influence the way you think about your own work, uh, you know, and how you how you experience and manage your time?
1: Oh, that's a great question. You know, I think as a Black woman in America, the way that our lives are influenced by the things around us, you know, we we're communal, um, generally, we're a communal um, group of people. and so the things that happen within our families and even out in the world, whether it's George Floyd or 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 someone else being murdered by the police, that affects us personally, whether it's our own family, uncles or aunts or sisters, as Black women, it's something that we experience as if it's happening to us. Um, so it feels like, aside from, you know, my degrees in law or... Or creative writing, or the one I'm pursuing now in psychology. Um, I just think living, anyway, in the body of a black woman feels like immortality. Like you've lived several lifetimes, constantly recreating yourself. So it felt very much in line with my experience as a black woman in America.
0: Yeah, I mean that's so that's so that's such a poignant thing, you know, because I think often. Interviewers, you know, sloppy interviewers like me make the mistake of always drawing connections <laughs> between fictional characters and and authors. Um, but at the same time, no, again, as you talk true. about experience, you know, I think it's such an important element for your for your work, especially.
1: Yeah, Stephen, what you're saying is true. Though I I happen to believe that writers write even if it's not about them, it's about their worldview, it's about their experience, the way they see the world, and I think that's what makes their stories unique and only in a way you know only being a the story can only be told by them in the way that they would tell it not that those those types of characters haven't existed in other literature or that type of setting or even what your the themes but I think only that particular writer can write the story exactly as they would write it because it's based in part on their experience in life
0: yeah yeah I mean well, you know, one of the things that you've, you've talked about publicly is placing a focus on healing. Um, and I think that's a growing awareness within the literary community, especially the healing possibilities of writing. How is that relationship between writing and healing played out for you?
1: Oh, my gosh. You know so much. So, you know, people say, okay, so I'm studying, um, I'm getting a master's in psychology to become um, a medical therapist. Because I want to be able to help people differently, and also to help with my own understanding of people as they go through the criminal justice system, um, to be a better advocate. So healing is something we talk a lot about in in the psychology program, and journalism is part of it. Writing, mm-hmm. and for me, when I write, it's writing to figure out what I think about things. Like, what do I really think about it? What's What's that thing that My quiet voice is saying um, that I don't always listen to. So writing to me is a healing process. And it also gives me a chance to say things I wish I would have said. You know, it's like if I had another chance, if I were that seven-year-old again facing that big kid, I would have (laughs) said or whatever. You know, writing is beautiful like that because we can rewrite time.
0: Wow, rewriting time. I feel like is such a element of this this book, but but also your career too. I mean, like you you for those who aren't aware, you know, you you have this sort of track record of criminal record clearing and, and clemency. I mean, redemption is so much at the core. I mean, where where do you where do you see the intersection among you know, sort of violence, redemption, and history uh, as you make it evident in the LA histories that feature in your book?
1: With With all of us, you know, especially as a country, being in the U.S., but for all of us, we've all made mistakes. Like, none of us are perfect. It's impossible. We've done things that weren't nice. We've made mistakes. And we've even done things that we're not proud of, I would even say. You know, things that, if I pushed it even further, things that if we were caught for that, we might even be tried criminally. Mm -hmm. whether it's graffiti or that shoplifting, that nail polish, whatever that thing was. Like all of us had an opportunity to enter this system that could have done a really poor job with our lives and actually stained our lives for the rest of our lives. Um, And we've certainly done that as a country to the Native Americans, to Black people, to marginalized people, to poor people, uh, to women, to the transgender community the LGBT community, I can go on and on. There has to be a point where we look at ourselves and say, and first take responsibility for what we've done. There's responsibility and there's accountability because only when we do those two things can we begin the process of healing. Otherwise, we're just perpetually coping. So when I go before a judge or somebody who has been convicted of a crime, It's not with people who says, oh, I didn't do that, I'm not guilty, I didn't do that. Because a judge, just like everyone else in the court would be like, okay, this guy, this girl, this person can't take responsibility. The same with clemency. So I run the Redeem Project. I don't represent like the Innocence Project where the people probably didn't do it, they didn't do it. That's why it's called the Innocence Project. My clients actually did the crimes and I've been doing this work for over a decade. And every time, they have to be at a place in their lives where they're saying, you know what, I did that. I'm sorry. It was poor decision making. I take responsibility. I paid my fees, served my time. And now I'm asking for the mercy of the court, which is the mercy of the state of of California, the people of the state of California, to give me another chance to live my life without the stigma of the worst thing I've ever done care you know over my shoulder and I think we still have to get to that point in America right now you know we don't even want to talk about slavery because it might make white children feel bad but guess what it also makes black children feel bad we haven't reached a point of responsibility and accountability so we can heal and that's why we continually to cope in this endless loop um and somebody has to stop it and mature and be like, I'm mature enough to move on. I want to move on. I take responsibility.
0: Do you worry at all? I mean, it's interesting. Historical reckoning that we're having in this country and that is bleeding into schools and politics and, and you know, our whole lives, it seems, around, you know, supposed critical race theory and all these other issues. At the same time, do you find that? because of all the things that are happening in the world, everything is being scrutinized, not just your past actions, as you said, but your, pa- your words, every word is being scrutinized. Do you worry about self-censorship? Do you, do you have that feeling when you're writing that you, you face an internal pressure to maybe moderate yourself or, or tone down your language or somehow somehow you know, incorporate like the oppressor into your own voice?
1: oh hell yeah i mean (laughs) real talk hell yeah but it but i've gotten with the perishing i came to a point grace i felt more censored with the perishing i took all the the training wheels off because i felt like i've i've created this space as a writer we create a space i want to be able to explain myself if i feel a certain way i want to say this is real to me I have space. I made space in this novel. If it's bought, if people will read it to explain what I mean, because the last thing I want to do is hurt people. That's what I know. Um, I can correct. I can teach or show my experience, but I don't want to hurt anybody. I especially don't want to oppress people. And I think the, and that's what I tried to do. And I wrote an essay about it, about the use of my pronouns. And someone asked because I have a hard time using she, her, she, her, or they, whichever I want to, use. because of all the ways I've been renamed throughout my life. So my full name is not Natasha Dion. You know, it's Natasha Dion, Harris-Saunders. But before that, it had an R in my name. Before that, it was spelled different. Like, there's so many ways I've been renamed throughout my life. Uh, my name's Shorten, and you know so so on and so forth but in that essay i said just give me a chance to explain why i'm struggling and it is not that i don't understand where you're coming from because i think we come from the same place so in the novel i had a chance to explain myself what i mean because i think by listening to each other that can be part of the healing and the growth and the maturity process and if i censor myself at all the hardest is that i'm christian Not like these people like Trump holding up their Bible saying, this is the Bible I believe. Like, I am just like fringing and just like, oh, my God. Because for me, being a Christian, which are a group of people who have historically and continually oppressed people, fat phobia, racism, abuse, like all these these things still exist um, in the church. Um, So for me, it's not saying that I'm Christian is not a proclamation, like somebody like Trump. Yeah, this is what I say I am. But it's a lifestyle. And you could tell by someone's actions if that's what they really believe. But we're in, but Christianity right now, there's a reason and it's it's justifiable that they're treated a certain way. So I usually try not to say that as much um, because that's not what I mean what what you see on tv is not for sure the furthest thing from what i mean so i'd rather just show it
0: yeah and 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 let the chips fall yep yeah well let me ask you finally i mean you you founded a, a beloved literary series that's had such a great run can you can you talk about the literary community specifically in la and and how it's influenced your work
1: oh my gosh okay
0: so dirty laundry lit is Mm
1: -hmm. my reading series (laughs) and it would not be possible without pen america real story it was one of the former ceos um michelle Mm frankie who i told her i said i have this idea i just want to do this reading series where we can celebrate writers you know i don't care if they're brand new with their first book or with their first story if they can read let's have a good time so we go to a bar In Hollywood, there's a DJ on the stage. Everybody wears glow sticks. We make posters for every reader, even if it's their first reading and the experienced reader who's there. And we shout and we cheer like they're rock stars. A standing room only, about 200 people. And we just have a good time. And you know, it feels good. And that's to me what the LA literary community is. There's no gatekeepers. If you wanna do a reading, sitting in some panties and you know at the beach or you know in somebody's house people will come and they'll be like what color panties do we have to wear let's support <laughs> some, let's support some reading. you know it's like yeah. it's like that and i love that because we get to grow and everybody has an opportunity to contribute to the community because i believe it is a community
0: well let's leave it there for now. I could keep going, but I won't. Um, Natasha Dion. uh, the book is The Perishing, uh, also a 2010 Emerging Voices Fellow. Thank you so, so much.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Now for tough questions with PEN America CEO Suzanne Nossel, our weekly discussion of the tough conversations about free speech from the past week. Suzanne, welcome back. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Suzanne, so uh, a group of higher education critics announced earlier this month they were starting something they were calling the University of Austin, uh, charged with protecting free speech. Now it seems some of the luminaries associated with that venture are distancing themselves. Where is this movement coming from? And do you think starting a new university is the right approach?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think it comes from a sense of exasperation at some of the trends that we've spent a lot of time at PEN America addressing and analyzing in our work on campus free speech, the kind of new censoriousness on campus, trigger warnings, emphasis on microaggressions, uh, efforts to Deplatformed or disinvite campus speakers, and a sense of sort of wokeness run amok. And you know, this group, what I can tell, has come together to say we're going to create an institution where you know those values don't reign, and kind of academic freedom uh, runs supreme, and you can talk about all sorts of controversial topics that are kind of de facto off limits at U.S. universities. You know, honestly, I'm pretty skeptical uh, just because I, I think we have to work on this issue uh, on a national basis. You know, I don't think we can give up on US universities and think there's going to be like this one niche institution that somehow, you know, is going to revolutionize things for I don't know how many students they would even conceivably have. And so, The approach we've taken at PEN America is to work with the universities. There are a lot of people on the faculty, there are students, there are administrators who share these concerns. There are a lot of students who have never been introduced to the underpinning ideas of free expression and academic freedom. Once you talk about that in forums like our free speech institutes, they get it. They understand. They actually don't want to trade away these freedoms. They want to understand how they can be reconciled with the drive to, Create more e- e- uh, inclusive and equal institutions, and that, of course, is the subject of my book, *Dare to Speak*. So, you know, I-, I would say I share some of the underlying concerns that I think have motivated this effort, but I think it's it's sort of misguided. You're not going to win this battle by kind of buying a plot of land outside Austin and and creating this su- sui generis institution. I think that's why you've seen some of the early backers pull out so quickly, also because of just the climate of dismissiveness toward kind of all the rest of higher education. I don't think you can kind of throw all of that aside with the wave of a hand. I think we need to come to grips with the buffeting forces that are affecting our campuses and and learn how to to navigate and steer that.
0: So I want to move to Myanmar, uh, which the government there earlier this week agreed to release. A U.S. journalist named Danny Fenster. Uh, it was just days after a court in the country sentenced him to 11 years in prison. Could have sentenced him to more time. You know, the number of dissidents languishing in Myanmar's jails is already disturbing since the coup earlier this year. But does Danny's release, does Danny Danny Fenster's release, uh, signify some kind of breakthrough?
2: I fear that it doesn't. You know, it's it's very unusual for there to be an American kind of caught up in that type of situation. And there was a lot of pressure for his release. Bill Richardson made a trip to Myanmar where he's been before. Bill Richardson made a trip uh, some years ago when Wa and Cha Oo, who uh, we awarded our PEN America Freedom to Write Award uh, to them when they were in prison. They were journalists for Reuters who were in prison for documenting uh, a massacre of the Rohingya. And when Bill Richardson went over to try to secure their freedom, he failed. And you know, it's not surprising. There's just a lot more leverage and sort of a sense of public pressure when it is a foreigner, and unfortunately, kind of particularly a Westerner. There's a level of um, reputational risk that I think even a junta can can somehow feel, and so. Uh, I think the real measure. I'm. Mean, we're extremely happy for Danny Fenster because it was a terrible situation, you know, heartbreaking, and so enormous relief that he's now freed. Uh, that said, uh, I, you know, and they have released some political prisoners, but uh, I, I think the real question is, you know, do we see any loosening vis-a-vis the free expression of Myanmar's own uh, reporters and writers? And so far, uh, very little.
0: So finally, also this week, President Biden connected with Chinese leader Xi Jinping um, doesn't seem to have been hailed as some major breakthrough, though Biden did reportedly raise human rights uh, and concerns regarding Xinjiang, Tibet, and Hong Kong. The two also reached an agreement to loosen restrictions on journalists from their respective countries. Do you see increased diplomacy as potentially yielding progress on human rights in China?
2: You know... In terms of China's domestic human rights situation and how it treats its minority populations and dissidents and critics, I think US and Western and even global leverage are very limited. I think there you know, certain uh, outrages that the Chinese won't stoop to because of their own reputational concerns, but that they exercise a very free hand and are rather impervious to external pressure. I do think the agreement on allowing journalists back in, you know, while incomplete, is important. It was really, uh, you know, the expulsion of all of the reporters from Voice of America, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal—you know—it was just a, a, a the the slamming shut of an incredibly important window for analysis of Chinese society. I mean, it's it's remarkable. I've thought a lot about the st- stories that we're getting over the last year uh, from people who are stuck outside the country and just how hard it must be for them to source and report. And so. I do think that the, the restoration of that access uh, is an important step. Of course, it's partial. We did a big report a few years ago on the restrictions. That you know, this is uh, long before the expulsions, but other restrictions for foreign journalists who are operating then: travel restrictions, parts of the country that you can't go to, threats and intimidation uh, if you take on certain stories. Sort of leveraging using the visas as sources of leverage to. Threaten and in some instances punish critical coverage, and so you know one has to assume. And I am certain that all of that is going to be restored. I think they did this partially because of the Olympics and just you know the utter bizarrety of having these major global media outlets uh, you know effectively shut out for that spectacle, which of course uh, they plan to use to burnish their international image, Beijing's international image to the maximum. Extent so you know I, I'm glad the Biden administration raised and prioritized it. It's actually an issue that Biden had taken up uh, previously, and so it's it's reassuring to see that it remains a priority. But uh, you know we're going to have to and other organizations be continually vigilant about you know what they're actually our journalists are actually able to do inside the country.
0: All right, well we'll leave it there, Suzanne Nassel, CEO of PEN America and author of Dare to Speak defending free speech for all. Thanks, Suzanne. Thank you. And that's our episode for Friday, November nineteenth. You can listen to all our episodes at pen.org. Follow us at Pen America on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. We'll be off next week, but look for a new episode on December 2nd I'm Stephen Fee for Pen America. This is the Pen Pod. See you soon.